Guys, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Last week on our church's seventh anniversary service, and some of you that weren't here have still not sent a picture, just a little gentle reminder. Give the, get the picture to me if you would. I love you. I want a picture of you to commemorate you and our church. Uh, but no, send, send a picture. But last week, we, we, we took a special look at a study I titled Running the Race from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And uh, just, I, I really believe a, a, a needed reminder and emphasis as we head into this eighth year of ministry as a church to keep going, to keep looking to Jesus, to see the need for other believers in our lives. There's such a strong emphasis in that passage of Hebrews chapter 12 of, of we and us that we're to run together. We're to be encouraging one another to keep going, keep enduring, keep looking to Jesus as well. And so if you missed that study, I encourage you to, to listen to it. But this morning, we're jumping back into our study for a week. I don't know what Pastor Jeff's teaching next week, but for today, at least, uh, we're going to look at uh, the conclusion of Paul's second journey. Our main text is going to be Acts 18, verses 11 through 22. But let's actually begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read through verse 10. So Acts 18, starting in verse 1, Luke writing, he says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. Their occupation was intense. <laughs> you knew that was coming, though. And he reasoned in the synagogue, verse 4, every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord, verse 9, spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. This leads us now to the portion of Scripture we're going to be studying this morning, where we're going to see the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. We're going to revisit our final verse from, uh, from two weeks ago. Uh, verse 11 it says, and he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. As I said in our last study in Acts, one of the last places anyone 
would probably choose to put down roots and, and minister for an extended period of time was the city of Corinth. And yet God was desiring to do a work there. He wanted to save many people there in that exceedingly immoral city. And, and God wanted to use even the weakness and fear in Paul to be a vessel to bring his gospel to the people of Corinth. And as I said in that study, this verse is not just a time reference, although it is. It's also a, a testimony of the grace and power and promises of God at work in Paul's life to continue there for a year and a half teaching the word of God among them, knowing the dark and difficult spiritual environment that Paul was ministering in. See, the, the promise and reality that Jesus was with Paul, that the promise that no one was going to attack him to hurt him, that the encouragements to not be afraid but speak and to not keep silent, that Jesus had many people in that city, all of those things contributed to Paul being able to continue ministering God's word in Corinth for that span of time in spite of feeling fearful and potentially wanting to just be quiet and move on. And it's important for us to take note of the emphasis and priority of Paul's year and a half long ministry in Corinth that he taught the word of God among them. So Paul wasn't just you know, hanging out. He wasn't just kind of sharing life stories with them. He was teaching them. He was instructing them in the word of God. He was teaching God's word, grounding the saints in the scriptures, discipling believers by feeding them God's word so that they could grow and mature in Christ. All of that was central to Paul's ministry time, and it's to be central to the ministry of every church. I have been to churches that consider themselves Bible teaching churches, and there's like literally two verses that take up about two minutes of the entire study, and the rest of it is jokes and stories. And I'm not trying to diss every church that does that there's a place for jokes and stories i wish i was better at telling jokes and stories i just say intense and i'm like hoping that someone catches on and thinks my dumb dad joke is funny and it's not and i know that and that's okay and i'll keep the dang thing going for as long as i can because that's just how i roll but I'm the joke killer in my house. I like keep the thing going for weeks. Long, long since the, the laughter has stopped. <laughs> but actually teaching the word of God. I think we've gotten to a place in our society because of fast food and all the commercials and our access to things that happen so quickly, it's all at the touch of our fingertips, that we've kind of made excuses for what we feel like 
people can handle when it comes to a church setting, what people can handle in sitting and receiving the word of God. We, we, we've, we've come to decisions as a Christian culture that people just can't handle being in a Bible teaching setting for a long span of time. And so we just don't do it. We try to supplement it. We try to make it more exciting. We try to jazz it up and we add in all the fog and the lights and all the bit to try to make it more engaging. And we should be engaging people. But if our engagement with God is in things lesser than his word and and prayer and, and just who he is, then we're engaging in experiences that we're hoping will bring us into some deeper fellowship with him. But all it's doing is just producing some sort of emotional response and experience that is going to fade. The emotional experience is not building maturity into your and my life. The fog could be fine. The lights can be fine. But... It's the word of God that's going to make you and me grow. It's the word of God that's going to equip you and me for the work of ministry. It's the word of God that we come face to face with our God. It's how we know his heart. It's how we know who he is. It's how we know how he's worked. It's how we know who we are in Christ. It's through the written word of God. Part of why God gave pastors to the church, according to what Paul writes in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, is so that believers in Jesus' church would be equipped. They'd be mature. They'd be stable, not tossed about with every doctrine and philosophy and fad that comes our way so that the body of Christ would be built up, so that Jesus' body would be united in him, so that every member would do its part within the body and so that growth would be caused in the body as the body edifies itself in agape love. These things are all connected to the word of God having prominence. This is why God's word has given so much emphasis and has kept such a high priority and focus in the ministry of this church. Because God has placed a high emphasis and priority upon his word for the lives of his people to know him and grow in him. But added to that, in this year and a half, Paul also wrote two letters to the church in Thessalonica that we know as 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. That I, I just, for me, as I consider the state that Paul was in, knowing what he wrote in 1 Corinthians, where he said that when I came to you, I came to you in fear and in weakness and in much trembling, that knowing from Corinth in that place, he wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians, where the emphasis of every chapter is on the return of Jesus. I, 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 I find it very encouraging that in that place where Paul was fearful, it made his mind even more so focused on the return of Jesus. 
You know, sometimes we're going through hardship and, and what ends up happening is my focus becomes on me. It doesn't make me more heavenly minded. It makes me more earthly minded. I'm thinking more about what's going to play out in my circumstances. What, what is it, how is this going to affect me? Instead of thinking, wow, Lord, like I'm even more excited for heaven now because of what I'm going through. I, I, I'm even more anxious to be in your presence or to, to be with you where you are. That my, my mind more so is looking for the return of Jesus in the clouds where the trumpet's gonna blast and you and I in a moment in the twinkling of an eye are gonna be caught up together with the Lord and forever be with him. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, all of those things we see where he's saying, comfort one another with these words. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, those things spilled out of Paul's time in Corinth where he, where he was afraid. The circumstances of our lives right now, the circumstances of our world, all the stuff that we see going on, that we hear is happening across the globe. We cannot allow those things to paralyze us in a place where we become more focused on all of this down here horizontally, but actually cause it to grow in us a greater desire for the return of Jesus, to be with him, that we would be even more heavenly minded, that we would have an even greater eternal perspective on our physical circumstances. You and I, as believers, should not find ourselves in a place where we are just freaking out by the chaos of our world, we should be rejoicing that Jesus is coming again. And I know that that's not natural. It's not natural for us to look at all the chaos and destruction and jacked up stuff that's happening and bills that are being passed and persecution that's taking place in other countries and people that are losing their lives and, and murders that are being committed. It's not natural for us to be like, wow, Lord, I'm really excited for you to come again. I just want to like have a pity party or something. I just want to like, you ever find yourself and you're consumed with like bad news? You just keep looking at bad news. Why is that? Why do we do that? Like a glutton for punishment. Set our minds on things above, Paul writes in Colossians, not on the things of the earth. Fix your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We need that sort of perspective shift in our day. Paul had that. God did that in Paul's life. He wrote these two letters while in Corinth. He stayed put in one place long enough to really pour into the people in Corinth to, to preach the gospel, to teach the word. And, and through that time, later on, he wrote two letters to the church there that we are encouraged by and challenged by and corrected by. All the corrections of Paul in 1 Corinthians, they are corrections that we need. The church in America needs the corrections of 1 Corinthians in these days. 
so much that applies for us. But we're encouraged and blessed still today through the teaching ministry of Paul there in the city of Corinth in that day. Jesus had a purpose in Paul putting down roots in this exceedingly immoral city that went far beyond even the ministry that happened directly through Paul to the people in Corinth in that year and a half because his ministry is is still impacting, it's still convicting, it's still correcting, it's still encouraging and building up and equipping, equipping us as disciples of Jesus today. He stayed there a year and six months. He, he teached, teached, teacheded, he taught. He taught the word of God among them. Verse 12 and 13, it says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. It seems there was a change of guard politically that occurred at this time. Gallio now becoming the, the proconsul, which was a Roman governor over the region of Achaia for the Roman Empire. And historically, Gallio was actually the half-brother of the Stoic philosopher Seneca. He was an influential philosopher in Rome who actually was the tutor of Nero in his youth. Nero, who later we would become Caesar, uh, Caesar Nero, who would become the man who would be responsible for Paul's martyrdom. Clearly, the Jews were not content to just oppose Paul and blaspheme, as we saw back in verse 6. Because here, once Gallio became proconsul, the Jews now saw a new opportunity to try and shut Paul down and get him in trouble. And in a united front, the Jews who must have thought they could take advantage of the newness of Gallio in his position as proconsul to get them on, get him on their side, he, they, they rose up against Paul. They brought him to the judgment seat in the city square. And they accused Paul of persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, Judaism was an authorized or, or legal religion in the eyes of Rome. But these Jews, through their accusation, were trying to say that Paul was spreading an unauthorized or illegal religion that was contrary to what was approved, to what was legal, and that his method was by persuasion. And that word persuasion carrying the sense of enticing someone to do something through deception. They were trying to put Paul under a bad light to manipulate Gallio's perspective of Paul and try to influence his uh, judgment against Paul. We continue reading in verse 14. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. 
Remember, Jesus appeared to Paul, spoke to him in that vision in the night that Paul wasn't to be afraid, that he was to speak and not keep silent because Jesus was with him and that no one would attack Paul to hurt him for Jesus had many people in that city. But now those things Jesus said were being put to the test. This situation would have required Paul to trust what Jesus had said to him because his life was again being threatened by Jewish people in Corinth who were against him. You ever notice that the promises of God have to be applied? It's one thing to know about the promises of the Lord. But what about when, the, when a situation happens where that promise has to be applied by faith? The Lord, you know, you said this in your word, but my circumstances are, are looking a lot different than what your word says. Lord, you said this, but this is what I'm experiencing. Lord, you, you said to not be afraid, but what I'm finding myself in is a, is a place of fear. You've told me to, to not be silent, but Lord, what I'm wanting to do is just run. And, and we come to these places in our lives where sometimes what, what the Lord has said doesn't always look the same as what we're seeing in the present. And yet his promises are still true. I mean, Paul could have said, Lord, you said no one was going to attack me to hurt me. These people are here wanting to hurt me. You lied. These people have united against me. They brought me to the judgment seat. Lord, where are you in this circumstance? Paul could have said, Lord, I don't feel like you're with me. I don't feel like you're going to come through like you said you were in that vision. But the promises of God have to be applied by faith. This is a perfect example of that. Paul had to not just know what Jesus had spoken to him, he had to believe even when faced with something that, that didn't look like what he might have thought would, would be his current situation, he had to believe that Jesus was going to come through the way that Jesus said he would. And you and I find ourselves in those sorts of places all the time. What do you do when your circumstances don't match up with what you thought the Lord was going to do? What do you and I do when our emotions are not in line with what Jesus said that he would do? And this is where faith is required. It's not enough to just know what Jesus has said. It's not enough to just know the promises of God. But we have to walk in those promises. We have to live out his word by faith, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't line up with what we thought it would look like. Paul 
Paul was ready to open his mouth. He was ready to do what Jesus had told him to do, to not be silent, but to speak. Right? He says, it says when Paul was about to open his mouth. So Paul, by faith, is trusting that the Lord's going to show up. Paul, by faith, is believing that he's going to protect him. And so he opens his mouth, but I love it that as he opens his mouth, he doesn't even get the chance to speak. See, Jesus didn't need Paul in order to protect Paul. Jesus didn't need Paul's words in order to defend Paul. Because Jesus actually was going to use somebody else to bring that protection. Jesus was going to use somebody else to speak up for Paul instead of Paul having to speak up for himself. He didn't even need to speak because this Roman proconsul addressed the Jews first, shuts them down, essentially protecting Paul and and drives them away from Paul so that they couldn't do him any harm. According to this man, Gallio, if it had been a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, he he would have handled the situation, but that's not what was going on. These were matters of the Jews' own religious laws, revolving around words and names and questions over their own religious law-keeping. These were things that they should have been able to handle themselves, and since they weren't true legal matters, Gallio not seeing Paul in his preaching as breaking any laws, wasn't willing to be a judge in that situation. Not only was this a win for Paul and the gospel, Gallio basically declaring the gospel message to not be illegal or unauthorized and and not prosecutable legally, but it was also a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave to Paul, Jesus using Gallio to provide protection for Paul from harm when faced with an attack from these Jews and then driving them away from Paul so that they wouldn't interfere with him again as he continued preaching. Understand that the promise of Jesus wasn't that no one would try to attack Paul, but that he wouldn't be harmed even in the face of of an attack and here Jesus made good on his word by using this pagan political leader in one of the most godlessly immoral cities showing his power and faithfulness in Paul's life in this situation. Well look at what happened as a result of that in verse 17. It says then all the Greeks took Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. This is just like comical, but not like it, we sh- it's, you don't laugh that someone's getting beaten, but the Jews' desire was probably that Paul would have been beaten. Like in their mind, Paul would have been in the place of Sosthenes here, and he's just getting, he just gets beat. But instead, their synagogue ruler is the one who gets the beating. It seems Sosthenes, 
took over as synagogue ruler after Crispus became a Christian. Whether he moved on from that position or was replaced is is not known. But when we factor in the opposition to Paul by the Jews, it's likely the Jews replaced Crispus with Sosthenes to try and prevent others in the synagogue from following Crispus's example. If they had let Crispus stay as the synagogue ruler, it would have been like saying, cool, everybody else just do what he does. Oh, if he's following Paul's preaching, then, then you should too. And they weren't about to endorse that, so they give Crispus the boot. They install Sosthenes in his place. But when this effort to silence Paul didn't succeed and the Jews who had risen up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat were driven away, we find Sosthenes being beaten by the Greeks that were present who for the most part in that Greco-Roman world already harbored general hatred for the Jews. And we find Gallio taking no notice of these things. He was unwilling to involve himself in that situation. But in spite of these things, not only did the gospel rejecting Jews in Corinth fail to silence Paul from preaching, but it seems they also failed to keep their synagogue rulers from becoming Christians through Paul's gospel preaching. Because in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, he mentions Sosthenes by name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, when Paul writes his greeting to the church in Corinth, he writes this, he says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. We don't know how or when this happened, but this synagogue ruler who was there at the judgment seat with that united group of gospel-rejecting Jews that wanted to shut Paul down and get him in trouble, this man who was left alone at the judgment seat after the rest of the Jews were driven away, this man who was beaten by the Greeks when, while, while Gallio turned a blind eye to what was happening to him, this same man eventually surrendered his life to Jesus and became someone who Paul called a brother. That's just so cool. Uh, I love how powerful the gospel is, how radically Jesus works when someone puts their faith in him, how the Spirit of God can take people who were previously in opposite camps and would never have been friends and can make them brothers and sisters in Christ with such a sweet unity and fellowship. God was going to do that in Sosthenes' life. But now let's continue on and read verse 18. It says, So Paul still remained a good while, Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sencrea, for he had taken a vow. So because of Gallio's response and the protection that Jesus provided for Paul, Paul was able to still remain a good while after that situation took place. But eventually Paul departed from the church in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila joining him as he took steps to sail to Syria, desiring to make his way back to Antioch, his sending church, where this missionary journey got its start. But I want to point out here that Aquila and Priscilla are always mentioned together in Scripture, never separately. 
there's never a point where Priscilla or Aquila are mentioned on their own. They're always mentioned together. They're like the first kind of like powerhouse couple for the gospel in the New Testament. And the interesting thing is they didn't have a title. We're never told they had any sort of leadership role within the church. They were just a couple who God knit their heart together with Paul. They were a married couple who saw a single dude in Paul and they, they took him in with them. And they became a hub for Paul and his ministry. They were willing to pack up their business, which was intense, and follow along with Paul to wherever he was going next to provide support and encouragement and be used however the Lord might want to use them. And I just love this because, man, there's so many Priscilla's and Aquila's in the church who are just like them. You know, they're not, they're not looking for any sort of notoriety. They're just wanting to invite people in. They're just want to, wanting to love on other people. Their doors are open. Their hearts are open. And, and these people are to be commended. Commended. I believe that as much as Paul would have ministered to them, that they ministered to him that it was a mutually edifying and encouraging relationship in fact at one point in one of paul's writings he says that priscilla and aquila actually risked their own necks for paul that they put their own lives on the line for paul's life and we're going to see god use their availability to minister to others which is clear later in this chapter and how they're going to pour into a man named Apollos who God is going to use in great ways later. But it's also clear in how their house became a place for other believers to gather together in both Ephesus and Rome as we find in 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen and Romans 15 verses 3 through 5. This couple having a heart to always invite others in and be a blessing. I just love that. Now, according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary, Sencrea was a small seaport of Corinth on the eastern side of the Isthmus of Corinth. And according to what Paul writes in Romans 16:1, there was a church in Sencrea. But it was here, before Paul and Priscilla and Aquila set sail for Syria, that Luke records that Paul cut his hair because he had taken a vow. Like, it's a funny thing to have, like, that Paul got a haircut be something noteworthy in this story of Acts. Like, did, was this just abnormal for Paul? He didn't normally cut his hair. Um, but it says he had, he had taken a vow. David Gusick, pastor and Bible commentator, had some insights on this. He wrote... The, the vow was almost certainly the vow of a Nazarite, which we see in Numbers chapter 6. 
Usually this vow was taken for a certain period of time, and when completed, the hair, which had been allowed to freely grow, was cut off and offered to the Lord at a special ceremony at the temple in Jerusalem. The purpose of the vow of a Nazarite was to express a unique consecration to God, promising to abstain from all products from the grapevine, to not cut one's hair, and to never come near a dead body. Some of you are like, well, I guess I'm a Nazarite. Paul's performance, <laughs> I don't go around dead bodies. Paul's performance of this vow shows, he says, that Jewish opposition to his preaching had not made him anti-Jewish. He never forgot that he was Jewish. His Messiah was Jewish, that Christianity is Jewish, and that Jewish, and that Old Testament forms and rituals might still be used to good purpose. He further says, apparently, Though Paul was adamant that Jewish ceremonies and rituals must not be required of Gentiles, he saw nothing wrong with Jewish believers who wished to observe such ceremonies, presumably if their fulfillment in Jesus was also recognized. While it's not clear why Paul had taken the Nazarite vow, what is clear is that he didn't take that vow out of religious obligation. He didn't take it because he felt his righteous standing before the Lord was connected to him, abstaining from those things. Paul wasn't falling from grace here, but that it was just something he decided to do willingly between himself and the Lord, and he was going to be faithful to see it through to its completion. But let's read verses 19 through 21. Verse 19, And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. After departing from the seaport of Sencre on the eastern side of Corinth, they sailed roughly 250 miles or so across the Aegean Sea to the city of Ephesus, which was located in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And we're told that Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus while he entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. This was his ongoing practice. Reasoning, meaning that he didn't just go and he just preached to them and that was it. No, he was having dialogue with the Jews in the synagogue. He was teaching the scriptures, but he was also asking questions. He was listening the things that the Jews might bring up. What, what were they thinking? What, what were questions they had? What kind of doubts did they have maybe? And, and Paul would have this sort of dialogue in the synagogue setting. And no doubt he would use that time and he would use the Old Testament scriptures to explain and demonstrate that the Christ had to suffer, had to rise again from the dead. Things that these Jewish people would be familiar with in the Old Testament scriptures, but pointing them to Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, pointing to Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. 
preaching the gospel to all those in the Ephesian synagogue. But for some added context, back in chapter 16, Asia, or also known as Asia Minor, which Ephesus was the capital of, was the first of two areas, if you remember, that the Holy Spirit did not allow Paul and his team to go to to preach the gospel in before eventually coming to Macedonia. Paul and his team had wanted to preach the word in Asia, in Asia Minor, no doubt wanting to go specifically to the city of Ephesus, but they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit early on in this second missionary journey. And now Paul finally makes it to Ephesus, but he doesn't spend much time there. And I think this is largely because of this aspect that's really, really important And that's this aspect of the Lord's timing in things. It wasn't the Lord's timing for him to go to Ephesus a couple years earlier. And now that he's finally in Ephesus, there were some other things that Paul felt called to do before coming back and really spending time ministering there. And we're going to see Paul's ministry in Ephesus really thrive when he returns in chapter 19. But the Jews in this synagogue wanted Paul to stay longer, and instead Paul decided to move on. He told them, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus, leaving Priscilla and Aquila behind no doubt to continue ministering in Paul's absence and also be a landing place for Paul when he returned. But Paul's heart was set on being in Jerusalem for the feast, but he also had this desire to return to Ephesus, especially with this open door he was seeing with those in the synagogue, an open door to preach the gospel. And so he said he would return God willing. I like what Pastor Tony Evans said about this. He wrote in his Bible commentary, notice Paul's phrase, if God wills. It was no mere pious sentiment, but it was no mere pious sentiment, but Paul's humble acknowledgement that his life and plans were in God's hands. Similarly, James warns his readers not to boast arrogantly about their intentions, schedules, and efforts. Instead, he urges them to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do do this or that, as we see in James 4, verses 13 through 17. It wasn't to be merely a religious saying Christians were to quote, but a heart philosophy they were to adopt. He goes on to say, the same is true of us. It's okay to make plans. In fact, we ought to make wise plans. He says, see Proverbs 16.9 and Proverbs 19.21. But we must allow for divine flexibility, welcoming God to disturb our plans when he has other purposes for us. I love, love that perspective. It's not to be merely a religious saying, but a heart philosophy for us, to have a, a, 
to allow for divine flexibility? Do, do we allow God to disturb our plans? I'll just be honest with you. Oftentimes when God disturbs my plan, I just feel frustrated. Like, God, you're messing up my... You're messing up my schedule. Like I had stuff that I wanted to do. There's places I want to go and people I wanted to see. And I had this time frame in mind. God, you're disturbing. It's kind of a funny word to use in reference to God, right? God, you've disturbed me. But if we're honest, does God sometimes disturb us? Does he sometimes disturb our plans? He does. And we may not like it in the moment. We may have a bad attitude even. We may later ask for forgiveness. You ever done that? Like later on you're like, dang it. Like now I see what he was doing. Now I see why he was allowing that. Now I see why he, you know, derailed my plan. He had something else in mind. He had a different plan in mind. At the time, I was kind of bummed at him, but now I'm thanking him, and I'm actually asking for forgiveness because, Lord, you know I wasn't, my heart wasn't right in that moment, Lord, so forgive me, but, and and Lord, I want to do better next time. You ever say that too? Like, I've said that probably too many times in my life. Lord, I want to, give me another chance. I want to try that different. I want to say things. I want to respond differently, Lord, in the future, but God will disturb our plans. Why? Because his plans are always better. His plan is always perfect. His timing is always perfect. The problem is oftentimes we have our will, our plans in our hand with sort of a death grip. I don't want to let go of this will of mine. Lord, this is what I was wanting to do. This is what I had in mind for my life, my future, my finances, my relationships. And then he's got to pry my hand open, and it hurts. But he does it because he knows what's best. He knows that that thing that I'm holding with the death grip, that you're holding with the death grip, can actually be hurtful to you. It can be detrimental to your life. It can stunt your spiritual growth. It can negatively impact your relationships. That we would learn as the people of God to have a similar sort. I have a plan. I have some things in mind, but God willing. Lord, your will be done, not mine. To have open hands before the Lord with every single thing in our lives. See, oftentimes we think of ourselves as the owner. I own these things. I own my future. I own my finances. I own this situation. I'm the one in control. It's mine to do with as I will. But what we forget is that you and I, as believers, we're not owners. We are stewards. 
God's the owner. We're working with borrowed goods. Everything that we have is a gift from the Lord to us. Ultimately, those things belong to him. And when we can get our mind back into that place that, Lord, what I have is actually yours. I'm just a steward managing what you own. Man, we can navigate things a little bit more easily. A little more clearly. Because God has a will for your and my life. He has a will. We might not always know what that will is. He has one. And for us, an easier route to learn what the will of God is, is to keep our will surrendered to him continually. Just keep it surrendered. Again, you can have plans. But let God disturb them. Let God interrupt your plans. Let God change your plans. And trust him as you do it. Such a needed reminder for us continually. Let's look at our final verse, though, verse 22. It says, and when he landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. Paul sailed from Ephesus on the western coast of Turkey, sailed across the Mediterranean Sea, landed at the port city of Caesarea in northern Israel, which was about a 500-mile journey by ship. And after arriving in Caesarea, we're told he went up and greeted the church. This wasn't him greeting the church in Caesarea, although that would seem like the logical conclusion here. But anytime we see uh, this reference to going up, this was a reference actually to going to Jerusalem. Anytime they went up, it was a up, not navigationally like north. It was up in elevation because Jerusalem was higher in elevation. You always went up to Jerusalem. He went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church there. And then after doing that, he went down, not south, but down from the higher elevation of Jerusalem and actually traveled north to Syrian Antioch to get back to his sending church. And I have no doubts that both in Jerusalem with the church there and also in Syrian Antioch with his sending church there that Paul shared a report of all that God had done during his second missionary journey and gave God all the glory. I can imagine the rejoicing, the encouragement that would have taken place as Paul reported all that had taken place, all the good, all the bad, all that God had done. And with that, Paul's second missionary journey had ended, which verse 23, which we'll pick up in a couple weeks, is actually the start of Paul's third missionary journey, and we'll get into that. But in spite of all Paul went through on this second missionary journey, he was devoted to the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord. Seen in how he faithfully served the Lord, but also not just a devotion of 
what he did, but of the state of his heart. Devotion and intimacy with the Lord. We saw that in Paul's time in that Philippian jail as he worshiped the Lord at midnight. Devotion. Not just what he did for the Lord, but the state of his heart with the Lord. His relationship to the Lord. Not just his time in prison worshiping at midnight, but in how he voluntarily consecrated himself to the Lord with that Nazarite vow. Paul was devoted. His heart was committed to Jesus. He was faithful to the commission of the Lord. He preached the gospel everywhere he went, even knowing that people were going to hate him, even knowing that people could chase him out of that city as well, knowing that he could be beaten again like he was in Philippi and put in stocks in the inner prison. He kept preaching the gospel. He was faithful to the commission of the Lord. We also have seen throughout this second missionary journey that he was sensitive to the leading of the Lord. He allowed God to interrupt his plans, the Holy Spirit forbidding him and his team from going into two different areas of of Turkey through visions and burdens and open and closed doors and even here in Ephesus with not sticking around longer when the Jews in the synagogue asked him to stay. He was sensitive to the leading of the Lord. And his life was submitted to the Lord. He wasn't driven by his own will, his own plans, his own desires, his own want of comfort. But he submitted his desires to the Lord. We see this here in him saying, I will return again to you, God willing. Paul's second missionary journey had some really rough patches. It didn't go smoothly. It was full of opposition, persecution, even some suffering. Was directed through open and closed doors, was reinforced by visions from the Lord to provide direction and clarity, but also to provide comfort and encouragement. But Paul was able to keep going and see this journey through to its completion by the grace of God. By the empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit, by the presence and promises and encouragement of Jesus who was with Paul in all of it. And who was the focus of Paul's life and ministry. Paul was able to keep going Because his life wasn't about himself. Wasn't about people accepting and liking him and treating him well. Wasn't about his own comfort and safety and stability. No, he kept going because his life was all about Jesus. And there's so much we can glean from the examples of Paul and his team and what we saw in this second missionary journey I'm going to have the worship team come back up. In closing, 
Listen, no matter what we're facing, no matter what kind of season we're in presently, Jesus is with us. We don't have to be afraid. He's with us. We're to speak and to not keep silent, sharing the gospel with others so that they can be forgiven and justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, receiving his amazing gift of salvation just like we have. As I said two weeks ago, as I saw in Warren Wiersbe's Bible commentary, and he actually concluded this section of scripture in his commentary by revisiting what he said in the beginning, which is that it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. Guys, whose will are we living for? And is our will actually submitted to the Lord's will today? Are we listening to the voice of the Lord? Do we allow him to disturb our plans? How do we respond when he does? Those are usually telling of where our heart is. How I react when God disturbs my plans shows me if my plans are actually surrendered to him or not. God wants to use each and every one of us. He knows the state of our hearts. I take great encouragement in knowing that God didn't just ignore that Paul was dealing with fear. He didn't just leave Paul in that state. He met him there. He spoke things to him there to draw him out of that place of fear, to draw him out of that place where he may have wanted to quit. Speaking things to Paul that Paul's heart needed to hear to keep going, to keep enduring, to keep making his life about Jesus. And you and I need those same things from the Lord all the time. What we need is that fresh glimpse of the Lord, that fresh word from the Lord that just comes from sitting with the Lord, receiving from him, keeping our hearts open to him, casting our cares upon him, keeping our will surrendered to him with open hands. He will direct our path. He will give us open doors. And we may not always like what's on the other side of that open door, but if it's from him, we can trust him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, thankful for the example of faithfulness in Paul and Silas and Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila, Lord, as they just walked in your will, Lord, walked in your ways. Lord, made their lives about you and your kingdom as they preached your gospel, as they loved lost people, as they poured into your saints. Lord, as churches were planted, as 
persecution and opposition arose, Lord, you sustained them. Lord, you empowered them. God, you encouraged them. You protected them. And God, we need all of those things today. God, your protection, not even just physically, Lord, but spiritually, Lord. We have an enemy of our souls who wants to steal and kill and destroy. Who wants to rob us of your joy and your peace. Lord, we need your empowerment, Lord. God, to be able to keep going, to keep enduring, Lord, to keep facing, Lord, hard things, Lord, to keep opening our mouths and proclaiming Jesus. Lord, we need your encouragement, God, as we deal with this world and our own flesh, Lord, our own sin nature, God, that needs to be put off daily. Lord, we need encouragement from you. To be reminded, Lord, of who you are. To be reminded, Lord, God, of what you've said. What you're going to do. Lord, would we trust you? Lord, would we keep our eyes firmly focused on you? Lord, would our will be continually surrendered to you, Lord, that, God, your will would be done in each of our lives. Lord, have your way with us. If there's anybody here this morning and you don't know Jesus personally, you've never received him as Savior and Lord, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins i'd love to pray for you this morning if that's anybody here if you'd stand where you're at i'd love to pray for you maybe someone online this morning is in that place they're listening later and i just encourage you in your own heart just to say jesus i'm a i'm a sinner jesus i need your salvation lord would you save me Would you forgive me? Would you justify me? Make me righteous in the sight of the Father. Would you seal me with your Holy Spirit? Would you give me new life and eternal life? Jesus, I believe you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave. And today, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I turn by faith to you. Jesus, I put my faith and my trust and my hope in you today. Be my Savior, be my Lord, be my God. I just encourage you as you do that, the Bible says you will be saved. Oh Lord, as we respond to your word now as we are encouraged in the start of our time to give you the adoration that's due to your name lord would we not hold back lord would we worship you lord would our devotion lord not just be what we do for you 
but in the position of our hearts, God, being near to you, surrendered to you, Lord, loving you as you deserve. Lord God, continue to pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, in this time. And we thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.